come into play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Red, La- we'll see how Yo, packed Red Lobster, out. Red Lobster is going to be tomorrow. All right. We'll, we'll see today. how. Today and you. tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We'll see how that happens. You. All no. right, guys. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM. The voice of Harlem. <laughs> Thank you, Stanley, for the creepy ad libs. We never appreciate that. I see you're not going to Red Lobster today. <laughs> <laughs> First, I mean, hey, I'll go for the Cheddar Bay biscuits, but that's mm, about it. When it comes to from you know, all right, I can't stand Stanley. All right, I'm not Remember, the only single person here. It's the here. woman who takes the man to Red Lobster, not the other way around. That's right. e- exactly, Stanley. Red Lobster gonna be packed today. Anyway, all right, guys. So we're back. Uh, before we went on break, I mentioned that we're starting off the show speaking about Beyonce formation the Super Bowl, and respectability politics. Everything that pretty much we've been talking about for the last week. And, of course, if you want to let your voice be heard on this topic, the number is 212-650-6903. And tweet us at heard underscore radio. I want to start off by just basically stating the obvious, right? America has always struggled with institutionalized racism and anti-black oppression since its, in- its inception. Uh, from the enslavement of African people brought to America to the legalization of racial segregation, racism has been woven into American fabric and it still persists to uh, oppress black and brown people to this day. Now, this is evident within our criminal justice system, our educational system and the wealth gap between black and white families. For example... A study that was produced by a group called the Coleman Report, they studied 600,000 students at 3,000 schools and discovered that 87% of white 12th graders scored higher uh, than average black 12th graders in both reading and math. And another study that came out in 2014 from the Pew Research uh, found that the median wealth for white families in 2013 was over $140,000 compared to Hispanics, which was $13,000 for a year, this is a family, and blacks at $11,000. Huge, huge disparities, right, when it comes to just, again, your race. And, of course, we know that this happens because um, black people didn't inherit, um, you know, they, they couldn't inherit wealth because of slavery, and that still affects us to this day. So, um, um, so this is a struggle that black and brown people know all too well. While I feel like a larger a larger part of white America either dismisses it or is completely unmoved or unbothered. It's called white privilege. But I'm going to say a lot of that has changed on the day before the Super Bowl when Beyonce <laughs> <laughs> dropped a new song called Formation uh, and the video that celebrates black Southern culture and it takes a stance against black oppression. Now, in this video, which I want to add, was also directed by a black woman, a woman of color. I put it like that. She's mixed, but she is a woman of color. Uh, she, We see in this video the scenes of Hurricane Katrina, which was one of the worst natural disasters in the U.S. that disproportionately hurt low-income communities of color. I know I've seen it firsthand. I went down there in 2006 and 2007, and the Lower Ninth Ward looked like Hurricane Katrina had hit the, the day before. It was very disheartening. Um, and moving on, um, so and, and in the song and in the, uh, the video and the song as well, she um, talks about her black heritage. She loves uh, talking about her, her black family and just celebrating 
blackness. And there's even a part where Big Frida, who's a New Orleans bounce artist. Queen Diva. Yes. Yes. She uh, was also featured on the track. And she makes a, a reference to um, black Southern cuisine, collard greens, cornbread, the foods I grew up with and absolutely love. And then, you know, she talks about her lobster, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know... After that, then Beyonce performed a song at Super Bowl 50 halftime show. I know everybody was watching. It was the Super Bowl, of course. And she came out with her all-black dance troupe, dressed to honor the Black Panther Party. As a result, critics called the song and her performance inappropriate. They said it was anti-cop. They said she was race-baiting. And they said that it was this was not the setting. If you want to make a political message, do that in concert. Not at the Super Bowl, which caters to middle America. White people. Translation. Right. White people, as Stanley says. So, and, and you know, people like Rudy Giuliani just calling her out in protest and like basically every commentator on Fox News. Right. So that leaves us with a lot to talk about today. And I want to open this open this conversation up to the panel phone lines. Everyone can chime in. Um, I want to start by just asking everybody, what was your reaction to formation and Beyonce's Super Bowl performance? Jackie. Um. Everything. It was so great. I mean, it, I I am blessed that I get to live in a post-formation world where that just <laughs> exists and I get to watch it whenever I want. Um, I thought it was great. I watched the video probably a hundred times, like in a day, you know, I, I thought it was fantastic. I think that she is incredibly empowering. I think she's so immensely talented. I love that she used her voice to just, you know, keep it real, right, and be, just say whatever she wanted. And the fact that she used the Super Bowl as... Um, as a way to get that song out there. I know a lot of people were angry about it, but I think it's awesome. And I, I think she's getting criticism from both ends, from people that don't like her and people that do, that don't really understand. And I think that with her ability to, I mean, she is a powerful woman, right? She has, She's rich, she's famous, she's powerful. And she used the most watched platform, a hundred over 100 million people, people in the United States watch the Super Bowl and she used that to debut really for everybody this song um, in front of everyone in front of the most watched event on television I think is phenomenal I think she's fantastic but doesn't it raise the question that it was like a capitalist plot for her to sell more stuff right well I mean I mean the so I'm just the song comes out the day before she and I'm not even not even getting into like the racial politics of it because I agree with those those symbolism of the song but I'm saying is though the song drops the day before the Super Bowl then he she does the thing during the Super Bowl she announces her tour and apparently if you go on her website you can now buy a hat that says you know I have hot sauce in my bag or you can buy a t-shirt so like that to me is like this was just a big thing to separate people from their money and I don't I don't agree. know like I don't know I have questions about its genuine I mean the its last, authenticity the last line of the song is best revenge is your paper right, right exactly. like she knows what she's doing and I think that um, one of a really good critique that or a really good comment that I heard from a friend of mine my friend Tiffany who's been on the show um, argued that a lot of the criticism about her sort of capitalist tendencies right or her ability to raise money from this is rooted in whiteness right this idea that well if you know she's the same as everybody else like she has this power that she innately has um, and we're forgetting that she is a person of color that has gained this power but there's a 
system set up in this country sort of working against her, right? And so, yeah, she's going to make money from this. But I don't think that it's fair to say that she's only doing this to get money, right? Because look at the backlash from this, right? Look at how many sort of rich white guys are so angry. I mean, it would be a lot easier for her to not stir up all this this controversy and not make people so angry with her. Now they're saying that tour dates in Toronto and Canada might be canceled. I mean, that's not very capitalist of her to like put herself on the line in this way um, if she's risking tour dates and money in that way, right? I mean, well, she is going to make money. That's a fair point. I mean, I'm, I don't disagree with that. I just, I don't know. I think like the timing is no coincidence. Well, listen, this is America, and in order to survive in America, you have to make money. I'm not mad at her for trying to make money off of her brand, especially since I know all the money is going to go to her. It's why I subscribe to the title, even though right. I think Jay-Z is a jerk, because <laughs> like it's black-owned, and if I'm going to put money towards something, I'm going to put it towards a black business or a business that's supported by LGBT people or people of color, because we've been historically underrepresented and underpaid. As far as the video um, and a song formation, it, that should have been called the Negro Special, because... <laughs> In, in a good way, Selena, you give me a crazy face <laughs> because yeah, yeah, she gave me but, crazy. But like, I remember I was watching it with Marilyn, and she got so excited when Beyonce talked about having hot sauce in her bag because Marilyn carries hot sauce in her <laughs> bag. And what I liked about the video and the song was that it was so damn black; it covered every scope of blackness, and it was very in your face and very unapologetic and very much I like this. People made fun of Blue Ivy Carter's hair, and what did she say? I love my baby's naps and her fro. And you see her right there in the front with the future Destiny's uh, Child that she will also break uh, up with to go out solo with. And she talks about her man's, she loves her husband's big nose because Jay-Z has a big nose because he's a black man. She goes out there as a voodoo priestess, and she gives a finger to the white establishment. She says, stop shooting us. This was as black as Hennessy with apple juice. Um. I will say what I really appreciated about Beyonce's uh, song, the video, was that she made a song that wasn't necessarily geared towards white America, white people. I don't think that not everybody would necessarily understand the cultural references as much unless you, you know, unless you Google it or, or research the lyrics. But it, I, I think that she was embracing, like Stanley said, her her blackness, her identity. Mm-hmm. And it's like if you're from the South, if you're... If you're black, you don't have to be you're from the black, South. If you're black, especially yeah. if you're from the South, but if you're black, then you, you got those cultural references. And mm-hmm. you were like, like, Beyonce, uh, like uh, Stanley's girlfriend said, it's like... OMG, you're speaking to me like this. And I was actually baffled by how much shock value she got simply by promoting a pro-black uh, a, pro- a pro-black song that talks about history, culture, and symbolism. I'm like, really? Well, why are you surprised? Let's really think about the, the kind of white person that would be offended by this song is the kind of white person that gets mad when you say Black Lives Matter. Right. Whenever they're not inserted into the conversation, when it's not about them, when it's not praising them, there's an issue. So when a black person gets mad because a Creed, which was a great movie, the white person who was like a supporting character in a movie gets an, gets an Oscar or whatever it's called but then the black main character doesn't and the black director doesn't they get mad and say why is it always about race but then they'll turn around and get mad because black entertainment television exists so why are people boycotting because white tears because yeah because it makes them uncomfortable and it's not for them and it's not about them right. so they get uncomfortable I mean the type of criticism that she was receiving from guys like Rudy Giuliani and Peter King just proves to me how powerful that song was and how right she is in releasing that song because you had these establishment, you know, conservative white men that are very angry about it. And I love the fact that they watch the video. I think that's like or maybe they only watch the Super Bowl performance. But regardless, the fact that they watch the whole thing and had something to say about it. Um, I tend to not agree with Rudy Giuliani or Peter King on anything. <laughs> and so it just 
further proved how important and impactful that video was. And when was the last time you've seen a black star this big who transcends all of the biggest white stars that people of color are supporting so enthusiastically and is now putting out a pro-black message? The last time white people were this mad was when Madonna made that video, Like a Prayer, where she had sex with the black, um, the Jesus, the black Jesus <laughs> or whatever she, like, he was. And she around in yeah, the church with that, the, yeah. Yeah, that was the last time. And the reason why, because Beyonce is a very clear threat to not just to black, to their whiteness, but also it's like to their capitalistic power because she can do that and put out a tour where it costs $2,000 for tickets and black money will be spent on that and white money will be spent on that. And I, get right, but, but, also I am, but I'm just curious, and this is a question that I don't know if we can answer here, but just to, you know, to put it out, who is also benefiting than that? Does Beyonce have a white manager or, no. you know, like no, she's her own thing? Who no, like who's The money goes to title and her. Because All of it. A, yeah. you, you, she doesn't have any management. She doesn't Nation. have any. She does have management, but like it's mostly. That's like what I'm saying. There's circle. no uppity white person in the background that oh, is benefiting from I'm this. Sure I'm someone, just there's, curious. There's always, in the music industry, there'll always be, there's always be some right. white person. But the thing about Beyonce and Jay Z is that they 100% own their brand. Jay Z paid $5 million for the for the rights to all of his masters. Then he signed a seven-year, $150 million deal with Rock Nation. Beyonce got a bigger deal, which means she has her own distribution. And then they created Tidal, and the only place you can get that video until maybe a half an hour ago or a day ago was on Tidal, which means you have to subscribe. And you know what that means? That's money going to Beyonce's pockets because she's the owner. That tour, she's not signed to a label. She's signed to Rock Nation. That money goes to her. She's yeah. getting big chunks of that check. Well, I, I mean, my I I think that's a good point, and uh, then it raises a second question, which is about social justice, right? Which is, I know that there's been some reports of her and Jay Z helping out with the bail fund about people and protesters that are getting arrested. But a lot of people have made a point to say that it's not good enough just to raise these black issues. It's you have to also figure out a way to have political change. And so the next step in that, as far as I'm concerned, which is yeah, if they're going to use that to make all their own money and to promote a message then they need to take that money that they use to and and use that to politically promote that message but they well, do yeah, yeah, but they do they absolutely do. and I, I think that not she gets it. a lot of criticism for not being at the forefront of every movement and being at every rally and being at every protest but when you think about it how could she do that and take a, she would take away from the message of the movement by inserting herself into every event because she is beyonce right she is one of the most famous people on earth she is Beyonce, right? Like nobody compares to her. So if she were to show up at a rally or an event um, and speak out, the focus would be on her. It wouldn't be about the message or the movement. Harry Balafonte poured plenty of money into the civil rights movement. He wasn't necessarily running around like, hey, look what I did. Right. A lot of the stuff was found out after the fact. Yeah, which I think is more impactful. But I I think that basically the question that Alyssa raised, it all goes back to this. Is Beyonce putting forth a substantive form of activism through her work or simply appropriating images, complicated, these complicated images in the video for her own commercial gain, right? And then uh, the question is, what does she do with that? I mean, to answer that question, I feel like it's it's pretty obvious that this song was um, conveniently timed. Um, as as well as calculated. However, I don't think it takes away from the power or the scope of the message. My first initial reaction when I heard this song, or one of them, was this is manufactured. It sounds like she took like a lot of trending topics, a lot of hot issues, put it into a song and said, you know what, we're going to release this the day before the Super Bowl. I'm going to do this during, I'm going to perform the song during the Super Bowl and during that, com- and then we're going to put out a, an advertisement promoting my tour. It was extremely calculated and I think that 
the fact that she also released it in the year 2016 also testifies of how secure she feels in her career to finally release a message this controversial. Now, I think that if we if we look about it, and I talk about my I talk about this in the article on Let Your Voice Be Heard, lyvbh.com. Um, if, if you look about if you look at it. The, the way that it's calculated and the fact that she put it out today, um, does it take away from her activism? Does it say that she's being inauthentic? Is this inorganic? Or has she always felt like this and felt like, you know what, I'm just going to stay in the background. I'll continue to give donations. I'll go to marches. I won't speak. I'll show up, just have my presence there to support. I won't tweet about this. I won't speak about this in interviews. I'll continue to live my life how I want. Maybe I'll wear a shirt that says, you know, hands up or something like that. Um, but but it, it all does come into play for her to just say like, okay, now I'm going to finally talk about this. Okay, so and on that note, Snelly's giving me the break sign. We're going to have to go on a quick break, but we will continue this conversation about Beyonce formation and that question, why now? We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. Melissa, you know that You know that line, I knew Jack Kennedy, you are no Jack Kennedy. You oh. Well, <laughs> I don't know John Legend, but you're no John Legend. I'm John Legend squared, all right? And you will not bash a song, <laughs> my and Marilyn song. Marilyn Chrissy Teigen. Psych. No, she's way hotter. Yes, Thank you very I agree. much. Um, but, fine, Selena. Go ahead. Take the thunder. Oh, no, no. So so where we left off, we were talking about Beyonce, the Super Bowl formation and respectability politics. Beyonce has t- taken a new stance, a new embrace of blackness, of black identity, and she's letting everyone know about it. And she's unapologetic about it. Uh, I just wanted to briefly mention SNL did a great skit yes. on how white people have been losing their minds because they finally discover that Beyonce is black because <laughs> she's so talking about uh, black issues in this in this song. And she's doing it a lot through the imagery, I might add. And before we went on break, I was pretty much talking about that question of, you know, is she putting forth, you know, a substance form of activism through her work or is she almost like appropriating these images and everything in the in this video um, for her own commercial gain and profit? And I know uh, Jackie had a yeah. response to well, that. Well, so Selena also mentioned, like, why now? Right. Like, why, why now? now? And she, Beyonce got the same criticism after her last album dropped where a lot of people said, oh, now she's a feminist all of a sudden? Like, why now? And I don't actually believe that all of a sudden she gained this critical consciousness but even if she did let's say all of a sudden she woke up and she was like wait i'm a feminist i care about these issues that's okay to me i don't care if she didn't before and she does now i'm never going to reject someone who gains critical consciousness no matter when in their life or in their career they do i think that's something that i I'm weary of that a lot of people are doing and it's the same thing that happened when she dropped her last album where people were like oh well she's an inauthentic feminist because she never talked about these issues and previous works had been sort of anti-feminist and all of a sudden now she cares about feminism maybe it took this point in her career to be able to speak out in a way that wasn't going to receive a tremendous amount of backlash and even now even after the drop of formation she's receiving tons of backlash and that's with her status and her power now right i don't think she would have ever been able to release a song like this 10 15 years ago so i don't care about the timing of it i i'm just happy that it's happening stanley i understand we were getting comments 
yes, we were getting comments. So I wanted to read a comment coming from Andrea from Real World Dropouts. And she says, no one wants to own their racism, so white people ask black people to conform, not have their own culture and be proud of it. And then when that doesn't happen, it's, well, I'm not racist because look what they did. Mm. When even if black people conform to white expectations, there will still be a reason why black individuals are killed at a higher rate, incarcerated at a higher rate, receive scholarships or educations because they're black, excuse me, because they're black and not deserving. The overall white population doesn't want to accept the black experience as something valid. People have no idea what the Black Panther Party did for black communities or what they represent in the first place. They are brainwashed by the by the whitewashed version of history that they were given. All people saw in the Super Bowl Sunday in that formation video was black women and people being proud to be black. And that for- transformation, that transformed into anti-cop. It's honestly illogical. All right. Well, thank you for that real world dropouts for leaving that comment. I know we have Miss Deborah on the line. We do. Okay, we're gonna let her let her voice be heard. Good morning, Miss Deborah. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Selena. You said that. Why now? Mm-hmm. Yep. Why not? Mm. Get him. Why not before? Yeah, but why not now? She did it Sunday. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, I'm not so. I don't think anybody disagrees that she shouldn't have no, done no, it. No, no, no. I didn't say Miss Few. Well, I said <laughs> Selena. Yes, I Selena. She had said, "Why? Why is she doing it now?" Right. Yeah, and, and, and so I'm wondering from you, like, why not? Well, well, the thing is, my perspective on it is, I appreciate it, and, and what I said is that no matter how calculated. This decision was no matter how manufactured this song was, I still appreciate it. The message and the scope of the message is much more powerful and it's much more needed. Whatever it is that was in Beyonce's heart and mind or pockets that led her to do this, it, 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 I think that it doesn't outweigh the power of the message. So I appreciate her for doing it. But even the way you're like you're articulating it, you're saying like no matter how calculated or no matter how opportunistic, you're like you're pretty much projecting your own like point of view on it to everyone else and then saying at the same time, well, I appreciate it no matter what she was trying to do. It's very clear what you think she was trying to do. So like I feel like you're kind of like Well, the thing because the thing is the reason why I appreciate Beyoncé doing it Mm-hmm. Is because if she didn't do this, we wouldn't be having this discussion. It wouldn't have been a, we wouldn't have had this message translated through the Super Bowl, which is a huge venue for all people so to see. Is it sincere or is it manufactured? Because you said it was manufactured before. Even if it's not sincere, even if it's not sincere, I appreciate her for doing it. I don't. I can't. I can't. One hundred percent. No. I can just look at the facts. I can look at her history. Sure. I can look at her background, yeah. and I can make my own projection. I will never know unless she comes out and says it. Right, which she probably won't because she keeps everything close to the chest. She doesn't do a lot of interviews. So, And, you know, I think what's interesting about this song and the video, which are now the same thing, in my opinion. The song is the video. The video is the song. I think they've, like, merged into the same, you know. Um, but I think that she has left it open for interpretation a bit, right? She's not explicitly saying... This is what I mean with each one of these images. There's so much conversation about. And that's why it's being misinterpreted as being this like very anti-police, anti-cop video, um, while others are defending it and saying it's not. I do not see it as that, as being anti-cop, anti-police. But um, there's a lot. It opens up. She's not explicitly stating what her beliefs are to a T, right? 
there's a lot of room for conversation. But you know what? That's another part of it, which is just like asking for the police to be held accountable for some of the things that we've seen going on in this country. Um, I mean, now and obviously in the past during Jim Crow mm-hmm. and even before then, um, you know, is not the same as being anti-cop, right? So that's another yeah. big thing that needs to be addressed, which is anytime people are saying Black Lives Matter or stop killing us or, you know, the symbolism or the imagery of the little boy dancing and the police putting mm-hmm. their hands up at the end of the video. Why is that automatically equated with being anti-cop? It's not. It's, like I said, asking for accountability in policing, especially with the high numbers of black and brown people that we see being killed by the police, you know, is not the same as being right. anti-cop. And in fact, that whole war on cops narrative is malarkey because we actually, and I know I've mentioned this before, police are being killed at the lowest rate ever right now. We are seeing less police dying in the line of duty now than we have ever seen ever historically, ever, ever, in in the history of this country. So this narrative is false. And it's, uh, I think Stanley hit the nail on the head when he said something about white tears I caught part of. But, uh, you know, it's like just because, you, you know, like, uh, you know, it's, it goes back to that whole thing, which right. is just because you're saying like this needs accountability needs to happen. That's not speaking about something else. And everybody, especially like white people, try and make it about themselves. Right. Right. All the and time. Enough, and that's right. and it's not about you. Yeah, and right. I say that as a white, a white person. It's not about us. Right. We have a call on the line. We have Jeanette on the line who would like to let her voice be heard. Floor is yours. Hi, how are you? Hey, Jeanette. Hi. I just wanted to comment on the anti-cop segment of it. Of course, people are going to focus on that small, on that small scene in the video where she's submerged in water when mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of water and there's a cop car in the middle of it. So, of course, people are going to say that she's anti-cop. But honestly, what she was trying to say, what she, was, she was trying to make a Hurricane Katrina reference. That's why on the back of the car it says New Orleans Police. It's not trying to be like, oh, kill cops or, you know, down cops or anything like that. It's strictly supposed to be a Hurricane Katrina reference. But, of course, people aren't going to see that. But I do honestly think that there's a lot of attention on Beyonce just because it's Beyonce instead of the, ironically, instead of the economic and political issues that are portrayed in the video. Thank you totally. so much, uh, Jeanette. I think that we all agree up here about, you know, thank you for breaking it down about why she was on the cop car and what that did symbolize. And um, again, these the, the issues should be bigger than Beyonce, but I don't know if we're focused more on her or the issues. I'm going to veer left just a little bit because there's something Jackie said and something Jeanette said I want to connect. Yeah. So Jackie said what she liked about the video was that like Beyonce it, like doesn't speak about what it, she means. So it's open for interpretation. And then Jeanette said that like people are, are like misinterpreting this particular image where she was talking about one thing which is also the way that i interpreted it but it what that does for me is gives me appreciation for beyonce the artist because it shows that like she can like send a message and like kind of leave space for people to to kind of like take it how they want whereas you have other people like kanye west who just do crude things and then call it art (laughs) all right well that's another discussion i I, guys i want to i want to talk about some of the pushback beyonce has been getting from the left the far left let's go uh, so the founder of the New York chapter of the new Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, his name is Khalif Kusar. He actually did an interview with the New York Amsterdam News and talking about the tribute that she made at the Super Bowl to the Black Panther Party. And he said, and I quote, it was disrespectful to what the Panthers stood for. Then he added and he said her outfit and her blonde weave dilutes the point that she may have been trying to 
trying to make. So she's getting pushback from the far, um, the very far left. And I definitely want to get reaction from the panel on what some of the Black Panthers are saying. You know, when you first said he had some criticism, I was like, oh, brother, here we go. But he has a point. Black Panther was... <coughs> wow. Black Panthers was all about pro-blackness and, like, being comfortable in probably your blackness and blonde hair is not black. So I can understand that point. But I think, like, he's missing the bigger picture, which is, like, who the heck is talking about the Black Panthers? The Black Panthers has, has turned into a fringe group that even most black people don't, like, acknowledge. Not, not most people, but even a lot of black people don't acknowledge anymore because they don't know the history behind it. And now we're having a conversation about this group, which, in case you guys didn't know, was the big reason why we have breakfast in schools now. Because That's they started right. a breakfast program where they were based in California. And then before that, there was no breakfast program. And because it was so successful, the, gov- the federal government said, hey, we should still listen to black people like we're going to do with lit and other things they do. No, Stanley is absolutely right. And just to add to that history, the Black Panthers were also all about defending the black community against police, against the KKK, and doing these feeding community uh, programs. They stood for defending um, black people said, you know, excuse me, um, they were basically saying when it comes to violence, you know, Peace is the answer first, but we need to meet violence with violence. We're going to have to do something to fight oppression. And they were they they practiced their Second Amendment rights. They took this a very pro-black stance and they helped black people really find a voice during the 50s, during the 60s that was non-existent. Yeah. And for the record, two things. One, the reason that California has such tight gun laws is because Ronald Reagan was governor when the Black Panthers were like, hey, you're going to shoot. You want to shoot? We're going to shoot back. And he said, oh, no, black people can't have guns. And two, the Black Panthers in and of itself, they were targeted by the FBI, by the CIA, and by the police. Let's talk about the activists who were shot in their homes, in their beds, and the police said it was a shootout, even though they were only one direction the bullets were going to. So do you find it disrespectful for for Beyonce to use that imagery, or do you think it's important for Beyonce to use that imagery? I think it's important, because now, you know how many people are Googling Black Panthers? Right. Well, to answer that question, Alyssa, I, Beyonce's image does not correlate with the standards and the ideals of the Black, Panth- Black Panther Party. Number one, a lot of people pointed out that her dancers did have the afros, but she did come out with her blonde weave. She stayed true to her essence, right? This is who Beyonce is, and it was a tribute in her interpretation mm-hmm. in her eyes. I don't think that she was trying to be reflective of the Black Panther movement to that um, to that that accurately, right? right. She was just saying, you know... Right. It's her. It's up to her interpretation. It did more good than it did harm. And I'll tell you, even that interview, um, you know, the fact that the Black Panther Party, they're getting press. They were in the Amsterdam news um, and they're getting features again Does speak to the power that she had just by doing this. Why can't they be like Red Lobster? They're ecstatic that Beyonce mentioned (laughs) them. We also have um, Ms. Deborah on the air again. So I want the um, Selena. How do you want to? Yeah. uh, Yes. Go ahead. Take take the call. No, it's, you know. There have been, I mean, I'm a kid. I was a kid. I don't know, per se. I wasn't in the bed with them. But, I mean, like, people have, have talked about the history of some of the uh, the, the Panthers uh, bedding down with uh, white females. So maybe that was a little indication. You know what I mean? Maybe she was trying to let you know indirectly. I mean, I think she gives people a lot more credit than they deserve. Because when I hear people sometimes talk, I'm like, did they really see the same thing that we that I saw? This 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 is she's trying to tell you something and you're not getting it. You're not getting it. But I mean, sometimes we have to be very open and very honest about the truth, and then this way you can get a lot more from it. 
Thank you very much, Miss Deborah. I think she just do some shade at some, some of the Black Panthers. So, so what were, what do you mean, I mean, Stanley? I don't really know much like about like that. I just during the Black Panther movement, there were some people who dated white women, and I think it's a bit hypocritical to call her out for that one piece when like the overall message is a lot bigger. And then also, I think there's some a little bit of patriarchy behind that criticism because Black Panther was very progressive. A lot of the members were very like progressive, and some of the first LGBT activists, some of the first feminists. But there was still a lot of respectability politics in relation to how women had to behave. I'll, I'll, I would push back on that because I don't think it was all about respectability politics. I think the Black Panther in Party, women. when it comes to women, I think that what they said that they were fighting that stereotype that women, that black women were these hyper-sexualized beings that could not get raped. Every time you saw a black woman, and we see it again over and over perpetuated in hip-hop videos, their eye candy, you see their breasts, you see their butt, you and you barely sometimes even see their faces. Right. And I think that the Black Panther Party took a hard stance and said you're not going to disrespect our women like this they're women and that's why they dress militant and that's why they and that's why they did they did cover up i mean they were still sexual beings but they didn't put that at the forefront because right. they wanted to be respected as but i'm human saying there was still first. patriarchy behind the way they treated women yeah. i still like property i still the man was above that and that's why i say there might have been some patriarchy involved in this response but i'm sorry listen no, I, just like, I feel like there's too much time not by us but like being spent on her blonde wig <laughs> you know it's like you're you're Focusing on the trees that are in front of your face and not on the forest, right? Which is right? like the patriarchy. Okay, right. The piece forest of this. is the bigger picture. Is right. the fact that whether you feel like it's a it's a prop that she's just doing this for one reason or doing it for another. The fact is she is using her celebrity status to bring some of these issues to the forefront and to distract from the fact that she's doing that based on the fact that she has blonde hair. Like to me, doesn't make any sense. It's it, that. That is focusing only on the trees. It's not focusing on the forest. It's ignoring the fact that she's taking the time for whatever reason. And we can have a debate over the reasons. And we have. She's taking the time to bring these issues into the forefront. And so you shouldn't focus on the trees instead of the forest. Um, we have Brother Omar on the line who would like to let his voice be heard. The floor yes, is yours. Happy, happy, ha- happy, happy Valentine's Day to uh, the family. And uh, I, I thought that, uh, well, first of all, you know, this is the 50th anniversary of the original Black Panthers. You also have the new Black Panther Party, which is headed by uh, attorney Malik Zulu. So let's, uh, but I think that's of, of a different ilk. But they follow the same uh, prescription of what the original Black Panthers started. Uh, I don't know if uh, your panel or the people know that when the Black Panthers were disorganized by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, who called them the most treacherous uh, uh, organization in this country, and, you know, you had the uh, KKK, the White Citizens Council, American Nazi Party, but they targeted the Black Panthers. And when they disorganized them, most of the Black Panthers were women. Remember, Elaine Brown was the chairwoman of the Black Panther Party, and they brought that to the forefront. And they were young. They were teenagers. Stanley mentioned about the breakfast programs. They also had medical programs, too, that the government picked up on. Uh, 
And they have a documentary coming on PBS Tuesday. Uh, I'm going to uh, uh, watch that uh, on the Black Panthers and Bobby Seals and uh, uh, the original. I had the privilege of meeting uh, El- Mrs. Eldridge Cleaver, who's teaching now at uh, at the University in Connecticut. So these were young people who were moved, trying to move the country in a direction of self-defense, black power, black uh, entitlement. And uh, I think we should give kudos to Beyonce for bringing this to the forefront. What 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 her hairstyle was that has nothing to do with it. Her, she and her husband have given monies, millions of dollars to these organizations. Black Lives Matters, trying to get the brothers and sisters equal representation for prison. So she ha- uh, she has a long list of things that we could be proud of this sister for. And that's all I want to say about it. And thank you so much for listening to me. Thank Thank you you. so much for chiming in, Brother Omar, with that comment. I want to take final uh, comments from our panel here on, again, Beyonce, the Super Bowl, and respectability uh, politics. I mean, Brother Omar made a point and and, and pretty much said that Beyonce did is doing more good than she's doing harm, whether she didn't do it in a certain certain way that would uh, please everybody. Um, you know, that's arguable, but she's still doing more good. What do you think about that, Jackie? I, I agree. Like, I am totally taken with her. And I think, like I said before, she could take all my money. I am a devout member of the Bayhive, so I nice. will full disclosure. But I think that what she did here was great. And I, I totally, I don't know, I don't agree with, I can't agree with any of the criticism she's been, she's been fielding. I think that this video was really important. I think that she chose the exact right time to release it at the Super Bowl, which is a night that's sort of dedicated to kind of this like male violence and aggression. She took, I mean, this is who we're talking about. This is the part of the Super Bowl that we're still talking about. She was able to shift that attention, I think is fantastic. Um, and yeah, I can't wait to see what comes next from her. Thank you for that, Jackie. Um, Alyssa? Oh, yeah, no, I mean, I agree with most of that. I don't have a lot more to add, but I would say, as I already said, I think that, you know, we shouldn't spend so much time talking about, you know, like, what was her hair or what was this, and, like, focus on the bigger picture, you know? How is Beyonce and Jay-Z using their power and their influence as people of color with money and with some sort of power in context compared to other people, um, you know, in order to push this movement forward, and if, you know... Regardless of whether this may have been some kind of marketing scheme so that Beyonce can make money for herself, if some of that money is going towards pushing these causes and helping the young people who are perpetuating these movements, I am all for it. And I am proud that she used the Super Bowl uh, to put this message forward, notwithstanding the fact that she knew that there was going to be outrage from the white privileged white tears community. So I'm going to paraphrase something Sarah Silverman said. She said on Twitter um, after this performance, she goes, only Beyonce could put out a song less than 24 hours ago and the whole world knows it by heart. Mm. And that's the kind of power that she has. And Beyonce also has the power to have a whole bunch of little black girls all over the world and all over this country all of a sudden like that that big black nose that they have and like that kinky, nappy hair or that photo that they have and all of a sudden be so excited about their blackness. And she also has the power to have a whole bunch of people going, who is Fred Hampton? Who are the Black Panthers? And all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people who didn't know anything about anything are woke or are informed. And why? Because of Queen Bay. I'm all for it. 
Right, and, and I just wanted to add uh, really quickly that it, when we look at, again, the statistics, I started off this segment talking about the, the, ed, the gap in education, the wealth gap between black and, uh, black and white families, and also in our, our criminal justice system where we see black and brown people being taken and being taken in and put into jail for even having small amounts of marijuana um and and it's not like they're the only people that happen to use or sell marijuana but there's they're just the ones that's getting arrested and i think that when you have a society like this any contribution counts and helps and beyonce with her celebrity and with her platform is only adding to that right um she's also a shameless capitalist she admits in the song, I'm going to be the next, I'm going to be the black Bill Gates. Yeah. She's unapologetic about that. I'm going to make money. But as Alyssa says, what, what, what really matters is how you use that money to empower, to give back, and to help others also reach that same plateau. So I think that, again, what she's doing is definitely clap worthy. And I hope and I would love to see more of this from Beyonce. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the death of Antolin uh, Scalia. CR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, you missed one heck of a segment about Beyonce, formation, blackness, anti-blackness, the Black Panther Party, and white tears. And if you're wondering who I had this conversation with, it was with Selena Mother Loving Hill, Alyssa Cat Daddy Fuchs, and Jackie Queen's Astoria Cohen Ooh. with the flannel scarf that don't look too good, just like her face. And I am Stanley Fritz, <sighs> young, handsome, black. Big nose, Negro, hot sauce in my book bag, Hennessy in my pocket. And we are talking the news <laughs> roundup. And in this one, it's a special one because we are only focusing on the biggest news story to hit so far this year. If you guys have not heard, Justice Anton- Antoine Scalia. Antonin. Antonin, sorry. Antonin Scalia passed away yesterday. They found him dead in his ranch. What does this mean? It means that somebody who was 79 years old and has had a long history in the criminal justice and legal system passed away. Many people would call him a titan in his industry. Many people really appreciated him because of the way that he fought for Fourth Amendment rights and to make sure that people's rights were protected from the police. Other people would call him a blithering racist and a homophobe and someone who thought that slaves had dignity, but that would be Clarence Thomas, his slave. Wrong wrong justice. I'm not going to I'm not going to bash the dead, guys. I'm not going to bash the dead. But less than three minutes after we had found out that he was dead, conservatives were already saying that they would not allow Barack Obama to appoint a new Supreme Court justice. His body is not cold yet, and there there have already been hundreds of think pieces about how much of a horrible human being he was or who's going to replace him. And now we're going to pile on to that conversation. So let me me start off by saying this is actually uh, what is known as a constitutional crisis. Um, And the reason why it's known as a constitutional crisis is for two reasons. One, uh, you now have a vacancy on the court because it's... uh, this is very rare that a justice or in these this day and age, it's very rare that a justice dies on the court, uh, in, especially during the term while cases are pending. So you have a, a dual edged constitutional crisis going on right now. On one hand, you have the fact that now the president, who is not expecting to appoint somebody else to the Supreme Court, um, has to figure out who he can nominate and somebody who, you know, in theory, the Senate is going to approve of. Uh, just for so a little bit of background, uh, it the longest it's ever taken to uh, from nomination to appointment. And the reason why I say nomination to appointment is because the appointment process is twofold. It includes the nomination and then the Senate voting um, 
and once the Senate gives a thumbs up, then it becomes from an, a nomination to an appointment. So I don't want to confuse those words. The longest that has ever taken is about 105 days. The president has a little over 300 days left in his term. So there's no reason why he, you know, he he's, he was elected to a seven, an eight year term, not a seven year term. Uh, as you point out, Republicans are already saying they're going to block it that because, you know, the new people should be able to appoint uh, pick who they want appointed based on the next election, which makes absolutely no sense. But then it also throws a constitutional crisis about what's going on with these cases that are pending. And I know Selena wants to make a comment, and then we can come back to that last thing that I just mentioned about what happens to the pending cases. Right. I wanted to make a comment because you're seeing a lot of Republican backlash and a lot of them calling for the next president to nominate a, a, a new justice in 2017. And I think it all boils down to the fact that they don't want to have to vote or approve a justice that President Obama would nominate because it would hurt their chances of being elected in the 2016 election. So I think they're giving a lot of pushback just to save face. Right. I think you're missing a big portion big point of why they don't want to appoint anyone Obama nominates. More than likely, the person that President Obama nominates would be a moderate or a progressive, which means the big cases that are coming up, the biggest one which Skelly is going to miss about abortion, about voting rights, possibly about Obamacare in the future because Republicans are not quitting, would be decided would, would be, be decided on by someone who was appointed by Obama, which lessens the likelihood of them winning. Not necessarily. That depends on when the appointment right. happens and whether they would rebrief some of these cases that, that Scalia heard. So this really, I think, matters more for what happens in the next term than this term. Although you're right, assuming that they could get an appointment through quick, maybe there'd be another justice on the Supreme Court to hear the rest of the cases in this term and to decide the cases that have already been heard, but not necessarily. Um, I also I also think ultimately, like it doesn't he wouldn't do this. He wouldn't nominate a conservative to sit on the Supreme Court, but he might as well because it's not getting through. There's the Senate won't work with him no matter what. But I do think that there will we because of the election cycle, because of the political climate, I am not very hopeful for any. Any candidate that he nominates. I just wanted to quickly read you the statement or a brief portion of the statement that the president actually made. He said, quote, I plan to fulfill my constitutional responsibilities to nominate a successor in due time. There will be plenty of time for me to do so and for the Senate to fulfill its responsibility to give that person a fair hearing and a timely vote. These are responsibilities that I take seriously, as should everyone. They're bigger than any one party. They are about our democracy. They are about the institution to which Justice Scalia dedicated his professional life and making sure it continues to function as the beacon of justice that our founders envisioned. And he's right. This is bigger than party. This is about democracy. Mm -hmm. Our Constitution lays out a process for how things are supposed to go in these situations. It says that the sitting president gets to nominate somebody to the Supreme Court, that the Senate, yes, must confirm this person on advice and consent. It doesn't say the Senate has to confirm just any person. But it also doesn't mean that the Senate can abdicate their constitutional duty for the next 300 days until the next election. And furthermore, if they do do that, it's probably going to backfire in their faces. Uh, There's a bunch of articles about that that are floating around right now. There's one in the Washington Post. If you're interested in it, I'll direct you to go read it yourself. I'm not going to paraphrase it here. You are smart people. You can read an article and you should. Um, But, you know, that's going to blow up in their faces. It doesn't, like I said, it doesn't mean that they have to approve just anybody. But they can't not do anything for 300 days. They have a 
constitutional responsibility under our Constitution. That is the supreme law of the land. They want to constantly bloviate about the Constitution this and the Constitution that and the Constitution this. Well, here you go. You have a constitutional responsibility. So guess what? Fulfill it. You're absolutely right, Alyssa. And I think it would be extremely irresponsible if the Senate did not would somehow try to obstruct this process from taking place. It's it's what's supposed to happen. It's what they signed up to do. It's mm-hmm. it's their job. Um, I wanted to um, I wanted to see if we can talk a little bit about uh, Scalia's legacy, what he was, what he stood for, why he was such an important voice when it came to conservatives. He was an, a constitutional originalist, a champion racist. A cha- but before <laughs> And I, and I wanted to get, um, um, you know, I wanted to ask Alyssa if she could sort of define, like, what does that mean? Because from my understanding, he, tra- like, his interpretation of the Constitution was so traditional and so literal. Malarkey. That's what yeah. I'll say to that. I actually, in my last year of law school, well, one, I should start by saying what I told Stanley earlier. Um, as a criminal defense attorney, uh, that's one of the things I do. I also do civil rights law. Uh, but Scalia was really good when it came to the Fourth Amendment and criminal and protections for people. Even though he talked about these people being alleged criminals, people that were unsavory, people that he wouldn't necessarily like, uh, he was very, very strict when it came to interpreting the Fourth Amendment and very well liked, at least on that issue, by the criminal defense bar um, and very protective of the rights of people who are accused of crimes. And in that sense, um, you know, he was, uh, I would agree with him, that on on another hand, I disagree with him on pretty much yeah. everything else. So, uh, you know, if that takes up 5% of his jurisprudence and 95% of his jurisprudence is everything else, I would disagree with 95%. I will say um, he was very well written as a jurist, as a law student. It was very interesting to read his dissents. They were very colorful. Yeah. Even if I disagree with them, they would always make me think and scratch my head um, and assess the questions that he put forth. So I will give him that. At the same time, with respect to his consistency, I, I say malarkey. I started off with that. In my last year of law school, I actually wrote a paper about um, his Commerce Clause jurisprudence and about how, you know, he would always say, I'm an originalist, I'm, an, I'm a textualist, this, this, this. But in reality, when it came down to it, um, there's several case law, and I'm not going to get into very nitty gritty legal stuff with you now. Suffice to say, if you're interested, we can post a link to that paper. You can go read it. Um, on many issues, he deviated from his originalist leanings uh, and, you know, and and found something else. I mean, like one of those cases would be the medical marijuana case out of California, Mm -hmm. uh, where he found that marijuana that was solely grown in California, which did not in which is a legal term, touch and concern any interstate commerce, nonetheless could be regulated by Congress because of the fact that it was a fungible good and might be able to enter the stream of commerce. Um, you know, on the other hand, he, you know, he, he said things that were just completely outrageous uh, and, and didn't square with some of his prior positions. Um, you know, that being said, I, I think that, you know, he would roll over in his grave to know that the, the Senate would block his his seat by not fulfilling their constitutional sure. duty. But on the other hand, he resisted, you know, many times, just like Justice Ginsburg, he was asked whether he would resign or step down. And he said, no, I won't. Not as long as a Democrat is president, because I think he was hoping to step down when a Republican became president. Right. So a conservative could fill his seat. So in that sense, this is poetic justice. Wow. Hopefully that won't like, happen. Um, I, I wanted to mention 
uh, something that tweet I think Stanley you sent it to us last night of Dr. Stacy Patton. She tweeted. And Scalia died during Black History Month, the ancestors at work. Now, I think that it was very inappropriate to celebrate someone's death and to say that, okay, like to even to make like a joke like that. I don't know. I thought I was a little taken I mean, back. I don't I was think you should back. celebrate anybody's death, but you're talking about the guy who suggested that black people don't do as well because mm-hmm. they go to schools that are too good for them or something. I don't know. You know what line I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I remember that. Like, really? That's yeah. kind of a smack in the face. Yeah, Justice Scalia doesn't have many friends in the black community outside of Clarence Thomas and Uncle Ruckus, and and, and that's and that's totally fine. And he he isn't someone who I'll say this he, he won't be missed by me. But no matter no matter who it is, a life is important. And when a life ends, that that kind of finality, you don't make fun of that. You you just it's it's, it's just in poor taste, especially when the body isn't even cold yet. Because no matter how I feel about him, and I feel very little that is good about him, there is someone out there who loves him and who thinks that his life mattered, and who him him leaving is going to impact him in a negative way. There are a lot of liberal, yeah. very liberal lawyers that are still very distraught over the loss of a justice for the and reasons also that his I family right and well of course his family <laughs> that goes without saying. I mean, but I'm talking about a lot of lawyers have come out just like I have and said, listen, I disagreed with 95% of his jurisprudence, but, you know, I still respect him as a judge, as a justice. I mean, you know, lots of people on both sides of the aisle have come out and said that. I think the most important thing about all of this is the November election. If Mm -hmm. this does not tell you that you need to go out and vote for the Democrat, no matter who that is, and I say that as somebody who personally really likes Bernie Sanders, and I don't want to get into a whole debate about Bernie versus Hillary or this, that, and the third, and, you know, these people who are saying, oh, well, I'm going to write in a candidate. But if this doesn't show you how important it is for you to come out and vote for the Democrat in the next election, no matter who it is, for two reasons. One, if they don't block the nominee, you know, then, yeah, I mean, the next person is still going to possibly get to appoint two Supreme Court justices. And if they do block the nominee until the next election because they think that the Republicans are going to win the next election and be able to put a conservative on, Democrats and people who are left of center need to do everything in their power to make sure that a Democrat is in that White House come, well, November, really January when it gets installed to make sure that no matter what happens, that even if the Senate does block the nominee, that the next president, at least for the next four years, is a Democrat. Because guess what? Maybe they can block a nominee for the next 300 days, but they can't block a nominee for the next four years and leave a vacancy on the court. Um, anybody want to chime in on that before I get into what happens with these 4-4 decisions or possible 4-4 decisions? Well, yeah, I mean, President Obama is saying that he's going to appoint somebody, and people are saying that the Republican Party cannot block him for a full year. I think they can, and I think they absolutely will. The question that I have for us is, like, are we like how do how do we respond now, knowing that you have a party that is dedicated on not letting the president do his job? Well, we always knew that. Yeah, that's nothing new. No, but there's nothing like like we talk about things like the debt limit and like appointing a, a Supreme Court justice, which is like par for the course in relation to what you have to do for your job. These are these are, this is like beyond egregious. Yeah, sure. Well, but well, it doesn't mean that it's uh, it's unbelievable. I fully expected this to happen. Right? It's it's egregious. Sure. I mean, I think we're all in agreement with that. But this is 
To be expected, absolutely. I think it's to be expected, but I also think, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's going to, if they do this, it's not going to work out well for them. Uh, You know, because either A, they're going to lose the election in November, and then they're going to be like, oh, wow, now either Hillary or Bernie gets to make an appointment. Mm -hmm. We should have let Obama do it. So that, or, or, the, the people who are already mad, who already have voted Congress as being less popular than head lice, I swear that's true. Um, you know, people would rather have head lice than, than Congress. Um, but, you know, that is going and, and the American people who already see Congress as being broken and you have literally Trump running on the idea that Washington is broken. And now you're going to have all these people looking. And yes, there's going to be some people on the right that are happy and they're going to go. This is great. This is exactly what Republicans should do. Just like they were happy when they Ted Cruz shut down the government. But most people who have some common sense are going to go, wait, we can't have a Supreme Court that's missing somebody. And furthermore, the longer the court remains 4-4, actually the better it is, potentially is for liberals because of some of the cases. And I think that's a good segue in for me to talk about that. Um, Now, I can only talk about some of the cases that are pending, but let me tell you what happens when there's a 4-4 decision. Um, When there's a 4-4 decision on any given issue, it means that the lower court decision, the, the court that decided the case before it got to the Supreme Court, that decision stands. And right now, with the currently pending cases, um, that would have a negative impact on basically two cases that that liberals, quote unquote liberals or people on the left really care about. But it would have a positive impact on about four cases that liberals really care about. In fact, um, so like here's an example, right? Um, uh, I'm going to just pick one, right? Um, She's picking what one. about well, you'll pick one? Jump in while I pick one over here. Same sex marriage. Oh no! Same sex marriage. Let me sign. That's, that's been decided. But there's, um, there's a big abortion cases coming up right now. Right. And now, if it's going to be a four-four, it will go back to the circuit court. If the circuit court said that like abortion should be legal, then that's it. Right. So okay, that's that's a negative example. I was going to do that second. So let me talk about Evantel versus Abbott. I actually did a quickie on this. This is the one person, one vote case. Well, the lower court held the U.S. District Court for Western District of Texas held that everyone should be counted. Everybody should be counted is a ruling that helps liberals. So if the Senate blocks somebody, fr- blocks an appointment, and the Supreme Court decides this case 4-4, it's going to mean that that lower court that counts everybody gets upheld. That's a win for liberals. On the other hand of that, as Stanley just pointed out, is Whole Woman's House versus Cole. The last court to decide that was the Fifth Circuit, and they upheld the Texas law that closed about half of the state's abortion clinics since 2013. If there was a 4-4 decision on that then it would divert back to the Fifth Circuit ruling, and that would actually be bad for liberals. But when you look at these cases, the ones that are still pending, as I said, I think it's about two that hope that a 4-4 decision would be bad for liberals, liberals and about five that a 4-4 decision would be good for them. So it would behoove the Senate to get another person onto that court, right. which, you know, even if... Think about this, right? Anthony Kennedy was was nominated in 1987. He was actually appointed in 1988 during an election year. Uh, so forget that malarkey that the right keeps saying about you can't do this because it's an election year. That's absolutely not true. Um, but Anthony Kennedy was Kennedy was appointed to be a conservative by Reagan, and he turned out to be fairly liberal. I'm yeah. not saying that's fair, and fairly moderate. Okay, fine, but fairly. I mean, he's the vote that that he's the essential vote in the in the same sex marriage right. case and in Lawrence v. Texas. So, which is something I don't think 
Kennedy could, I'm sorry, Reagan could have ever imagined when he appointed him. Reagan's probably rolling over in his grave about that, to be perfectly fair. The fact is, we don't know any way that this could go, but I just see, I just, the one thing that I do see is that if they do not act, it is not going to work out well from them, from both a legal perspective and from a political perspective. No, no, that's absolutely true, Alyssa. Was there anything? Okay, so we're, we're going to have to close there. Again, we'll continue to watch the Supreme Court, what happens next. Uh, for now, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about this staggering national heroin epidemic going on in our country right now. Don't go anywhere. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. So we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you were just tuning in, we had an extended news roundup where we talked about the death of Justice Scalia for most of the conversation. And we found out what are some things that could happen if the Republican Party refuses to let President Obama appoint another justice. If you don't know who's on the show today, so far it is me, Stanley Fritz, with Selena Hill, Alyssa Fuchs, and Jackie Cohen. And now we are talking about the national heroin crisis in the United States of the heroin America. Heroin so, America? I'm yes. sorry. Okay. Because when it's, when it's affecting white people, it's affecting America. And when it's affecting black people, then it's a BET special. <laughs> so. Notwithstanding, it's been affecting black people for, mm, I don't know, 40 years. Mm-hmm. So, guys, um, in case you've been living under a rock or you just don't pay attention, back in mid-August, the White House released a plan that would pour $5 million into combating heroin heroin use and trafficking. This is a plan that followed all of a sudden, a, a, not a random, but a consistent spike in heroin use and overdoses in the last five years. So we're talking from between 2010 to 2015, there was a spike of heroin users. But unlike in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, and even in the early 2000s when heroin use was being done by people of color and we had all these special laws to lock people up for using heroin or for using crack and put them in there for as long as possible, the heroin epidemic was hitting a different demographic. All of a sudden, this beautiful heroin, as Pink Floyd would say, the drug that gave you the dopamine where you'd fall asleep standing up, but you would never fall completely over. You would dip to the bottom and pop right back up, but you'd still be asleep. The heroin that ravaged my community along with crack cocaine that had so many people going to jail, the heroin that Frank Lucas called the blue magic, the heroin that caused all these problems was all of a sudden bothering Becky. That's right. Becky put her Britney Spears CD down and she said, I don't want to hear Jonas Brothers. I want something to make me comfortably numb. So she found that nice blue magic, that nice heroin, and she took it and she got addicted. And her friend Johnny and Noah and Chet and Heath did too. And all of a sudden, these communities that never thought it was a problem, that fled the urban cities to get away from black people and all their drugs, they had a heroin epidemic. And it got so bad that during the New Hampshire primaries and the Iowa primaries, do you know what they were asking about? They weren't asking about Benghazi. They weren't asking about Barack Hussein J. Kwan Obama. They were asking about heroin. What are you going to do about heroin? How are you going to address this? And all of a sudden, precincts and police stations that used to jump out of their, their skin to arrest black people and put them in jail are now letting kids who are using heroin in these white neighborhoods, of course, go to jail, spend the night, and then go to a rehab. They're not pressing charges because they say this heroin addiction is a sickness and you can't punish people with jail time because white. I mean, because it's not the right thing to do. So in this conversation, we will talk about this heroin epidemic. We will talk about how it's affecting these communities. We will talk about what things 
the government is doing what the police are doing to address it. And we'll ask the question, where the hell was all this caring when black people were dying of heroin overdoses? Oh, wow. No, I mean, I mean, Stanley, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, to think about it, when I used to think about heroin and, you know, some of my family members have been addicted, it was something that you thought about you shouldn't do because you'll get arrested. Right. I don't think that we typically viewed it as a mental health illness or sickness. It was a this is poor behavior. This is illegal. You'll get arrested. But you're absolutely right. There has been a new not only is heroin back into the national discourse, but the way that we are addressing and approaching this issue is completely different. We're talking about rehab centers. We're talking about Congress talking about um, investing millions of dollars to help stop this crisis now that a lot of young people and a lot of white people are, are beginning to be, uh, become addicted. And I'm just like, how and when did they even beca- did this spread over to white America? Well, a big way that it spread was through prescription painkillers. Yep. Um, and especially through the 90s, things like Oc- Oxycontin were prescribed like candy. heavily, like candy. And it, you can watch these videos, um, these like promo for doctors videos about why they should be using and prescribing Oxycontin. And they said, it is not addictive. It's not addictive. It's not addictive. Feel free to prescribe it to your patients. And then what they found out was only was not only was it addictive, but it was very addictive. And what was happening was people were patients were, you know, their prescriptions were running out and they were turning to other drugs, eventually heroin to feed that addiction. Um, so it was sort of a clear trajectory from these prescribed pills to heroin use. Absolutely. I think the pharmaceutical industry, as uh, Jackie pointed out, or at least scratched the surface of, had a big part in that. I mean, the reason doctors were pushing these pills is because the pharmaceutical industry was pushing the pills on the doctors, and the doctors were getting kickbacks from the pharmaceutical industry, so they wanted to prescribe the pills. And how did white Becky, how did Becky get a taste of the heroin for the first part? She could afford health insurance. Well, no. I mean, heroin didn't she didn't. Becky didn't go right to the heroin. Becky was home one day, and mommy and daddy weren't home. And Becky went into the medicine cabinet. And what did Becky find? Becky found some Percocets. So what did Becky do? Becky took a Percocet, and she went, "Oh wow, this is amazing! Oh. I never felt anything like this before." So then, what happened next? Becky went to school. Becky went, "Oh wait, let me find somebody who has some Percocets." So now Becky went around. Becky got some Percocets. Becky was buying Percocets from Johnny, and then Johnny got busted, and Johnny went to jail, and now Becky couldn't get any more Percocets. And then guess what? Becky found out. Jaquan? Heroin was available. Well, that's only if you're listening to the governor the of governor Maine. The governor of Maine, yeah. <laughs> um, then agree. Becky found out that heroin was available. And guess what else Becky found out? It was cheaper. It lasted longer. And it was stronger than the Percocets were. Right. So what did Becky do? Becky went and bought a bag of heroin. Becky also found out that she didn't have to put a needle in her arm to do it. She could smoke it or she could snort it. And that's when the game changed. And so I think that's a big portion of the story. Now, I don't think that we should get away from your original point, though, which is this idea that, oh, my God, now white America is dying of heroin crisis. Let's do something about it. Why didn't anybody do anything about it back in the 70s when Marvin Gaye was dying from heroin overdose, just to use one example, but where black people were dying all over the streets of Harlem from that? Nobody did anything because nobody cared. And you know the answer to that. And you know the reason. And you know it's based in race. And people want to be like, well, you know, it's not everything's about race. But guess what? This, it's about race. 
And guys, just to give you some context behind how bad the heroin epidemic is, as of 2011, 4.2 million Americans aged 12 or older, or 1.6%, have used heroin at least once in their lives. That means 5,927 people have died after using heroin in 2012. Also, if you're wondering about the demographics of heroin use because you think I'm just being hyperbolic, which I can be from time to time, the Center for Disease Control says males, non-Hispanic, whites, 18 to 25-year-olds, and people living in large metropolitan areas are the most risk for heroin addiction. Can I just add some more facts to that? So actually, um, we've seen between 2012 and 2013, heroin-related deaths jumped 39%. Um, and the rate of heroin overdose deaths from 2002 from to 2013 nearly quadrupled, four times the number of deaths. 90% of first-time heroin users are white, um, and uh, 75% of heroin addicts use prescription opioids before they turn to heroin. Uh, and there are approximately 300. 25 opioid-related deaths just in New Hampshire last year. The reason I mentioned New Hampshire, because you brought that up at the beginning, yes. people are asking these presidential candidates, what are we doing about the heroin addiction? And the reason why they're being asked about that specifically in New Hampshire is because of the large number of deaths. Uh, that's up 76% in uh nearly tripled since 2013. And just a fun fact, the number of non-white people who use heroin has been decreasing significantly. It decreased by over 30% in the last four years. And you know what else you're seeing also go up? Not just the race of heroin addiction and abuse, but HIV is going up in the same communities. Why? Because people share needles when they do shoot up heroin, when they do make that jump from whatever reason they decide to make a jump from smoking it or snorting it, and they start using needles and they start sharing needles, and then HIV goes back on the rise again. Yeah. And, you know, one of my favorite um, actors, actually, and I kind of feel like a nerd for mentioning this, Corey Monteith. He was in the, oh, yes. the show I that. Um, Glee. Corey. He died of a heroin overdose. So did Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, this yeah. is like yep. a real issue. And I think what's what's disturbing to me is that I see the way people discuss this issue and it's been true forever and it's starting to change now. And that's, you know, that's why we wanted to discuss this now that it's affecting more and more white people. But there has been very little compassion for the people suffering from addiction in general. And it's been treated like, you know, a hot topic issue that we don't even want to touch. Like there's something you're a deviant and there's something wrong with you instead of, oh, maybe you're someone in need of help um, and medical assistance. And we're starting to see a shift in that dialogue now. And we're, you know, presumably because it's affecting more and more middle class white communities, um, there's been been a call for more compassion, which I think is a great thing. However, the fact that it's taken white bodies to die from this epidemic to get to that point of conversation is is upsetting. That's a very good point, Jackie. When we come back, we will start talking about the ways that we are trying to find new approaches to dealing with the heroin addiction. But we're going on a quick break, guys. Remember, this is Valentine's Day, so we're playing some love songs. This is Bruno Mars, Locked Out of Heaven, because Selena is locked out of Valentine's. Life I Deserve. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, we are talking about the heroin epidemic in the United States of America. And if you want to call with a question, a comment, or a concern, you can give us a call on our phone number. It is 212-650-6903 or you can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. If you're on Facebook and you're chatting, you're a chatty patty, hit us on Politically Preposterous because that's where all the conversation happens anyway. When we left off, we were talking about heroin, heroin addiction 
direction. But Jackie had made a point to say that people are now trying to find different ways to approach the issue because throwing people in jail is not mm-hmm. going to solve the problem. And she did mention that this is happening a lot more probably because it's white bodies that are being affected. But nevertheless, we are looking for some solutions. So I want to talk about one of the solutions that has been happening in Europe that they use and see like and like talk about how they're starting to implement things like that over here. So in some places in Europe, um, like drugs are completely legal. And what they do is they have these buildings where there's three floors. The first floor, you can just take like your drugs, but under supervision of like doctors and everything else like that. If you overdose, they take you to the second floor where it's called will, insight. Just yes, so you know. Thank you. They'll revive you and they'll give you an option. They say, Hey, you can go to rehab. It's on the third floor. Or if you want, you can go back downstairs to the first floor and start doing your heroin. And the idea behind that is that, like, you you cannot criminalize heroin because heroin addiction because it's a disease, one. And two, it doesn't actually solve the problem. And you have all these people who are dying from overdose because they're trying to, as I used to say when I was in college, binge intake because they know it's illegal. And it makes more sense to have it in a controlled environment where you can help these people if it's available. Now in the U.S., instead of just putting someone in jail for five years for having heroin or selling heroin or taking heroin, now they're giving them the option to go to rehab. They're giving them options to go to disease control centers and to go to counseling. And I want to talk to you guys about what do you think are the next steps for making sure we're dealing with this in a more progressive way? Selena? Like you said, uh, Stanley, this is not a policing issue. This is a public health issue. That's number one. We need to change our dialogue around this issue. Again, another answer is treatment, rehabilitation, and recovery. Um, I, I think that that doesn't work when we're just sweeping and putting people in jails. Um, I think that another thing is maybe decriminalizing um, heroin, the drug. I know there's been a lot of calls for that. There's even been some calls, I guess, from the far left to just make the drugs legal um, overall and then just treat it um, um, in that same manner. So this way, I mean, a lot. Some, it's not necessarily making it legal. It's just basically decriminalizing it, which is different than making it legal. When you make something legal, it could be sold as a commodity in the market like alcohol is. But if you decriminalize something, you don't say, hey, you can have a pop up heroin shop on the corner. But you do say, which is if you get caught with it, you're not going to go to jail for it. Instead, we are going to work on treatment options. But, you know, before I, I did want to get into that, but I wanted to mention something that I thought was quite interesting, which doesn't get talked about a lot when you're talking about heroin addiction and potentially how to quell it. So um, a annual report that was done by the World Drug Sorry, the United Nations World Drug Report found that Afghanistan's poppy fields have expanded 36 percent between 2012 and 2013. Here's a lot of things that people don't want to talk about. Right. What does that have to do with anything? Well, when you destabilize a government in a country like Afghanistan, like the United States has been doing, that leaves a situation where there is no government to stop people from growing large poppy fields, which is the plant, which is where heroin comes from to begin with. Now, this goes back all the way to the 80s. But if you want a little quick brief history lesson, the United States was not very happy with the fact that the Soviets were in Afghanistan. So the United States decided they were going to arm a bunch of people to fight against the Soviets called the Northern Alliance. Eventually, the Northern Alliance turned into the Taliban, attacked America. We sent troops there to fight the Taliban. And there was a further destabilization of the government under Karzai in the region of Afghanistan. Under this destable government, you have lots of people growing large poppy fields and there is nobody there policing them to shut these fields down. So now the fields are growing and the fields are growing and the fields are growing. And when there's more poppy plants, 
plants, that means there's more opioid production. And when there's more opioid production, there's more importation of heroin into the United States. So just like the U.S. had its hand in destabilizing the Middle East, which we spoke about in lots of detail last week, the U.S. had a tan in destabilizing Afghanistan. And part of the way to fix this problem, aside from dealing with the addiction problems here at home, is to figure out a way to fix or stabilize the government that we destabilized to begin with in Afghanistan. Now, that's not going to completely stop the flow of heroin. But if there's a more stable government in Afghanistan that's able to quell some of these expanding poppy fields, then there'll be less poppies. And if there's less poppies, there'll be less opioids. Yeah. Even on a on a domestic level, how we treat heroin and how we classify it. I mean, heroin is a Schedule One drug. Do you know what else is a Schedule One drug classified as a marijuana. Schedule One? Marijuana. Marijuana is not highly addictive like heroin is. Heroin is highly addictive. That's why you say it's as addictive as heroin when you're talking about something that seems to be addictive because it is such an addictive drug. So when you're classifying them in the same way, what you're telling people is that they are equally as bad, right? And so if you smoke a joint, you know that you're not going to die, right? You're not going to kill yourself. It's not really, I mean, you might eat a lot of bad food for you, but you're really typically not going to put yourself in any bodily harm. So if you're smoking a joint and you say, oh, well, this isn't so bad for me. Heroin must not be as bad as they say it is because marijuana, they say marijuana is just as bad and clearly it's fine, right? So... I mean, it makes sense to think like, okay, well, if they're classified in the same, you know, as both schedule being schedule one drugs, what means that one is worse than the other? If you try one and you see that it's fine. No, you're absolutely right. And then the way that we even have a conversation about drugs is we like bracket them all as like the end all be all. Um, one of my favorite fan pages on Facebook is called um, Christians for Michelle Bachman. It's a spoof page. And like they'll have these memes that say, I smoke marijuana and now I'm gay. And <laughs> like just silly things like that. But that's really how this country treats all drugs. So then when you try it for the first time, and it's like, oh, that wasn't bad. But it's it's the greater problem with our criminal justice system as a whole, right? right. Which is that we're throwing people in jail um, for using the drug, for selling it, instead of actually trying to re- rehabilitate people um, who have a severe substance abuse issue. Well, let me let's let's go back to the conversation about the white black divide for a half a second because I was just looking at something. So, you know, when we you know, back in the in in the old days, we'll call it um, the when the use of heroin was predominantly placed in poor black urban areas, the public response was zero tolerance and stiff prison sentences. Now, today's heroin crisis is different and the demographics have changed. As I pointed out, 90 percent of first time heroin users are white. Now, I'm not saying this, but there is um, the director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, whose name is Michael Botticelli, Botticelli says that because the demographic of people affected is more white, who are more middle class, that these parents feel more empowered. They are more likely to call legislatures. They are more likely to get angry with their insurance companies um, and ask them to cover certain types of treatments. And they are better advocates. So they have been instrumental in changing the conversation. I think I wanted to get your reactions to that because that presupposes that black parents did not do the same thing. And I don't think that's true. Or is it? And so that's why I wanted to get you. It's absolutely not true, Selena. Well, we'll finish a statement and then I'll go. It's absolutely not true. Black families are pushing for this Black and Latino families were saying, listen, we, they need help. They have addictions. They were calling the elected officials. They were complaining. They were lobbying. They were protesting. But the problem is no one cares about black people. 
So when they spoke, it wasn't an issue. And that's a problem. And also, unfortunately, whiteness a lot of times equates to power or at least having a voice. Well, and and also remember, if you're speaking out and you're trying to contact police institutions and your local police department that you don't trust and don't connect with, and you're telling them, my son is on heroin, you're risking him being taken to jail. You're not. Who's to say that person is going to come enter into your home and try to have a sit down and figure out the best rehabilitation program for them to help them? That's not what was going on. And here's a perfect example. So we're in Harlem on 150th Street between um, Amsterdam and St. Nicholas. There's a police precinct. They used to call it the Dirty 30. Do you know why? Because the cops over there used to run into houses, beat people up, take their drug seller, and arrest them. They would be they would plant drugs on people. They would do they would pull hits. You think a community who's dealing with p- police like that? feel comfortable enough to go speak no. up about a problem that they're having, they felt like they had no outlets. Right. And, and just to add on to that, what happens a lot of times in disenfranchised communities, you become so used to oppression that you, it's almost, you're almost numb to it, right? And I think that a lot of times people internalize it and they don't speak out. And it's like, you know, when Uncle Billy comes home, you know, when Uncle Billy comes around for Thanksgiving, you know to watch him. And hide like, the good sheets. Right, right. And, hi- and also and hide the liquor and hide other things and make sure that he doesn't go to the corner store because you know what he's really going to do so i think that a lot of times that's how um black communities and black families have learned to cope with it because of outside oppression and and i wanted to add this really uh, interesting statistic and i know we were talking about how um more more people and more white people are becoming addicted i read that in 2014 that there were more than 40,000 people who died from a, um, a drug overdose which means which is more than uh americans who were killed in car accidents so i just wanted to add that factor in to talk about how much of a crisis this is this is definitely a crisis and we're starting to see more responses to it but i just I wanna, feel like this has always been a crisis and that we're only Right. seeing responses to it now because it's 90% white and no, that bothers the I mean, hell out it of me. Bo- it bothers me as well. Um, unfortunately, there's two, well, I'll say that for my closing, but it is what it is. What I do want to ask though is what this is what does this addiction look like for you and your communities? And it's, it's, I think it's kind of funny because I'm asking that to Jackie and Alyssa. Well, it looks Selena, very oh, real. I'm sorry, Selena, do you want to say something? Yeah, well, well, I didn't mean to cut in on them. I just wanted to let you know that I, I, I wanted to say Back in though this is something that's been talked about in my families. Back in the sixties and the seventies, the the people in my family who have been addicted to drugs, they were addicted to heroin. Mm-hmm. Now the people who that do drugs in my family mostly just do marijuana. And yeah. we talked about the phenomenon of how black people and and pe- uh, uh, people of color aren't really gearing towards those hard drugs like that. And they'll you know they'll be cool with a, with a, some beer and, and a joint. Well, you know that's an interesting point. Before I answer the initial question that you were asked. Because a lot of people have made the argument that the reason why marijuana has to be legal is because when your kid can just walk into the marijuana shop and just buy the marijuana and it's the only thing that's being sold there, then they're not exposed to other drugs. But when your kid has to buy marijuana from a dealer on the street, the dealer may say, well, I got marijuana in my left hand, but hey, I got this let me open up the right side of my jacket because over here I got some heroin, I got some cocaine, I got this, that, and the third. And so if we legalize marijuana, that gets kids away from all those other drugs. But that doesn't deal with the underlying problem that we know where at least most of these kids that are getting addicted to heroin are starting with pills that they're finding in their parents' medicine cabinets. Uh, so that doesn't cover it all. As to Stanley's initial question, I have seen this heroin addiction uh, epidemic direct, you know, direct directly affect people I know. I have lost several friends to heroin overdoses in the past five years. I have, uh, it is, um, 
I don't know how else to describe it, but I have people in my life that I was very close to that always had drug problems, but their drug problem, as as Selena pointed out, was that they liked to drink a little bit too much and maybe smoke a little bit too much weed, and then they got addicted to heroin, and now they're dead. So, um, you know, in that sense, I have seen it directly affect uh, people I know, but I've also directly seen it affect, uh, you know, community that I grew up in, and uh, even affect people that I don't particularly know. I know that uh, in my small town uh, where I grew up in the the small town that's next to it, uh, Island Park in Long Beach, the number of teenagers and high high schoolers that have overdosed is is absolutely astounding. Um, Yeah. So likewise uh, in in the, you know, predominantly white middle class town where I grew up, it is a very, very pervasive issue. I'm in a huge problem. And I know, you know, I don't need to get too into it, but Several people that I have known personally um, have overdosed and died from heroin. And this is something that I see happening in the town where I grew up um, in other communities. I mean, this is and Alyssa spoke to it before. This has been um, an issue for decades. Right. This isn't a new it's a newer issue for white people um, in white communities. But this is nothing new. And certainly I can say from my experience, knowing people who have been addicted to heroin and who have died from um, an overdose that this is this is an issue that must be treated with more humanity. The answer is not, and I can tell you just from anecdotal experience, this is not an issue that you're going to solve by throwing people in jail. This is something that people need help, need medical assistance, need maybe counseling. But the the way to to address it and to fix it is not through these aggressive means by throwing people in jail because these are not bad people. These are people suffering from an addiction. Thank you very much for that, guys. So we do have Brother Omar on the line. I want to give him a chance to speak. Brother Omar, let your voice be heard. Uh, uh, yeah, this is uh, supposed to be the day of love, and uh, this is a very depressing topic. I don't know if you're familiar, if you read the book uh, by the late Claude Brown, who I had the privilege of meeting. We graduated junior high school together. Man, Man in the Promised Land? in the Promised Land, which yep. just, it, it, you're talking about uh, the 60s. They, they were flooding these neighborhoods up here in Harlem in the late 40s, early 50s. And it, and it's amazing how uh, you started off playing this record by uh, a rock group or whoever they were. And usually when they when they got these young cats uh, addicted to the uh, heroin, as people like Charlie Parker and them, they were saying, well, you know, they were musicians. So when they said musicians, ah, these guys, but they, it was supposed to en- enhance their sound. And if you listen to some early Charlie Parker, I mean, this cat is, is still blowing your mind. And the bottom line is that America has always been a drug-induced society. If you look at Coke and Coca-Cola and back in the, back in the 19, 18th centuries where, where there was always drugs in this society, the solution is you cannot jail people because of this. I don't care what their colors are. The bottom line is it's a slave-induced. Once you start messing around with that stuff, it's death. It's either death or jail. So the cure is that we have to become more open-minded like in Holland and a lot of European countries and say, well, look, I mean, enough is enough is enough already. We have close to two and a half million brothers and sisters uh, in prison as we speak and another seven uh, and a half million walking around with a ticket on them. So the taxpayer winds up having to pay for all these addictions, whether it's Becky or or Shaquan or whoever it is, we wind up suffering because we have to pay for this foolishness. And uh, thank you so much. This This is a very depressing uh, subject for for a day of love. But maybe that's what we need, a slap in the face. 
Thank you very much for that, Brother Omar. So, guys, I do have to wrap this conversation up. Um, we, we still have a little bit more show left to go. Uh, Brother Omar made a couple of really good, a lot of really good points. Um, Man, Child in the Promised Land, by the way, is a very good book. I read it when I was in high school by Claude Brown, and it really paints like, a very clear and sobering picture of how bad the heroin epidemic was in Harlem. They used to call it horse at one time, or they say things like, I got the monkey on my back, and like just to talk about right. that addiction. And um, he also said something else. He said, you know, for a day of love, this is a really depressing topic to be talking about, but maybe we need it because maybe we need a slap in the face. When we first talked about having this as a conversation on the show for this Sunday, what I thought was, oh, it's a white people problem. And and I thought to myself, well, you know, they ignored black people, so now they can de- deal with the issue on their own. And that's not a good way to think about it, to be honest. It's actually a really bad way to think about it. But it's a slap in the face when you can have communities, whether black, white, green, yellow, Dominican, Puerto Rican, whatever, losing entire generations of their family, children who don't grow up to be adults because of an addiction, because of something that we're criminalizing instead of trying to find a human way to address. You have a major problem. And now, unfortunately, it took for, like, white middle-class communities being affected by this for this to become a big issue that we need to address. Unfortunately, it did take that, but at least now we can address it. We now have the opportunity to find different ways to deal with addiction. I was at a panel yesterday where they said you should treat gun violence like a public health issue because of the way that it spreads. You should treat drug addiction the same exact way as a public health issue issue and when one person overdoses because of drug addiction or just because of the use of drugs it doesn't just hurt that person and their family it hurts the entire community and we cannot continue to poison our communities ignore our children and criminalize a sickness that helps no one it hurts everyone and it's just dollars off of taxpayers pockets and families losing people that they love it's not worth it so we'll be back after this quick break when we return we will be talking about an, the clean power plan and how they got a major setback this is let your voice be heard and we are back so i'm Alyssa fuchs i'm your legal correspondent slash lawyer and i'm about to give you a quickie about uh the supreme court halting president obama's clean power plan although i should note uh this quickie um i wrote this before the late breaking and developing news about justice scalia's death and definitely that could have an outcome uh to what may happen with this which i will address i guess at the end since i did not include it uh you know, originally. So uh, what happened this week? The Supreme Court actually halted President Obama's clean power plan for restricting emissions from coal fired power plants. The court's decision is basically a quote unquote stop work order. Uh, States had been creating draft plans to sharply cut emissions so that electric utility companies could use these plans in deciding what changes they would need to make to comply with the president's clean power plan. Now, all of the states can freeze work until those plans till uh, of those plans until at least 2017 when the Supreme Court makes a final decision. So how did we get here? Well, last August, the Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, announced one of President Obama's landmark achievements to combat climate change. That was known as the Clean Power Plan. The Clean Power Plan is based on the Clean Air Act, which gives the federal government very broad authority to regulate carbon emissions, among other types of emissions, from power plants. The key, the sorry, the plan is a key part of Obama's goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions overall, and is also directly linked to the Paris Accords on climate change that just occurred back in December. The Supreme Court had previously held in many other cases that the federal government has broad rulemaking authority with respect to the EPA rules in several other cases, and the president was using this authority in order to enact his plan. 
After the plan was announced, 27 states sued the president and the federal government and the EPA to stop what they called a quote-unquote federal power grab and Obama's quote-unquote war on coal. Malarkey. Many of these states depended on heavy on coal-fired plants for their power. And, of course, many of these states are run by Republican governors who, guess what, they don't believe in climate science. So aside from the obvious reasons why they are mad, the other reason why they were mad is that the plan required these states to make major cuts in greenhouse gas emissions from their electricity producers over the next few years by aggressively setting out state-by-state goals. And they felt that this was an infringement on their state sovereignty and that it would lead to the close of power plants would lead to the loss of jobs of people living in their state. Who supported the order and who opposed it? As I already mentioned, 27 states, many corporations, no surprise there, um, and many industry groups also, uh, no surprise there, had requested the stay seeking to block the EPA from influencing energy policy in these states. On the other hand, 18 states actually opposed the request for the say. They said that the delay would compound the harm from climate change, lead to more severe storms, wildfires, and droughts. Uh, why does the issuing why is the issuing of this stay a surprise? Well, it's actually unprecedented. The Supreme Court has never before placed a stay on a regulation before there has been any lower court legal review by a federal appeals court. Some legal experts say that that sends a strong signal that the court would likely overturn the rule. Of course, this was before Justice Scalia died yesterday. That may change. Um, This order is formally known as a quote-unquote temporary injunction, but unlike many other temporary injunctions, it actually lacks an lacks an expiration date, which is also very unusual in the legal realm. According to environmental groups, that lack of expiration date is not only unusual, but it will also encourage corporations to pursue frivolous and expensive lawsuits against the government in order to try and extend the ruling indefinitely in the hopes of a Republican becoming president who will do away with Obama's clean power plan altogether. How does this ruling affect the ability of the U.S. to make good on its emission reduction pledge from the Paris Accords. Well, according to climate diplomats, the decision could weaken or it could imperil the international global accord reached in Paris because the cornerstone of that agreement was President Obama's assurance that the United States would carry out strong policies to significantly cut U.S. carbon emissions. If the rule is eventually overturned, it will keep the U.S. from meeting its commitments in Paris, and climate diplomats from other countries, namely India and China, have already expressed concerns that this could unravel and their terms of the Paris Accords. What this means is if the U.S. cannot meet its commitments under the accord, other countries such as India and China will probably back out as well because they will say that if the U.S. can't meet their obligations, why should we meet ours? And then the entire agreement would fall apart, which would be a disaster in dealing with climate change. When will we get a final decision? Well, first, the federal federal appeals court needs to hear oral arguments. That's the lower court. They are scheduled to hear oral arguments on June 2nd. It is almost a given that there will be an appeal no matter what the federal appeals court rules and the Supreme Court will likely take the case. However, even if the justices decide to hear a case, a ruling is unlikely before June of 2017. And for the many reasons we discussed during the news roundup, uh, the death of Justice Antonin Scalia could definitely throw a monkey wrench into that equation. But nonetheless, I should address what are the possible outcomes of this case. Well, first, the court will need to agree to hear this case from the appeal from the lower court. Although, as I mentioned, legal experts, including myself, are certain that this will happen. 
If and when the court does decide to hear the case, they will then have to issue a decision on the final rule, which will either unfreeze the hold and require states to go back to the drawing board and creating their plans, or it will overturn the rule entirely. Here are the possible outcomes. If the Supreme Court eventually rules in favor of the Environmental Protection Agency and unfreezes the hold and a Democrat is president, then the clean power plan will probably proceed as planned. However, even if they unfreeze the hold and they uphold the EPA's ability to make this rule, if a Republican is president, the Republican could say, "Eh, wait, 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 I'm in charge of the EPA now. I'm getting rid of this clean power plan. This was not my plan. This is not legislative. I don't have to listen to it. I don't care whether or not the Supreme Court uphold the rule. It doesn't matter. I'm getting rid of the clean power plan. Um, And because the reason the president would be able to do that is because the president, whoever the next president is, will have the authority over the EPA and over rulemaking. Now, What happens if the rule is eventually overturned? Well, if the rule is overturned, the EPA will have to and be required by law to still regulate carbon emissions, but the agency will have to go back to the drawing board, back to scratch, and they will have to rewrite an entirely new climate change rule, which will, of course, then be subject to new legal challenges. Of course, what that rule will look like and how strong that rule will be will depend on the priorities of the next president. So if I have not made it clear throughout this entire segment... I like Bernie. I don't care whether you like Bernie or whether you like Hillary. But if you don't go out there and vote for the Democrat in November, you are potentially going to imperil the clean power plan. You are going to potentially imperil the Supreme Court. And I cannot express to you how important it is that people who lean left go out and vote for the Democrat in November because there are so many different things that are riding on that outcome of the election and on that note thank you Alyssa for the quickie we do have to say goodbye next Sunday Stanley's turning 55 I mean 30 so you know he's Closer to death. I'm just kidding. You were saying about that that dirty 30? Dirty. He'll be celebrating his 30th. So uh, Alyssa's out of town. Stanley's out of commission. I won't be around either. So that means we won't have a live show. It's just going to be me (laughs) by myself in the studio. Just just Jackie and Beyonce. Jackie's going to show up and White's playing Beyonce to you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All for two hours. Get ready. I wish. I I totally wish. So, So that means, guys, we'll have another live show at the end of February, which will be the last Sunday of Black History Month. So look forward to that. We thank you guys for listening and tuning in. If you want to support us even more, subscribe to our iTunes uh, podcast at LYVBH Radio. You can also go on our website, LYVBH.com, where we have great editorials. Where I challenge Beyonce and Stanley also challenges Bernie Sanders' false revolution. Okay, These are the headlines on our website. You should go there right now, LYVBH.com. We'll see you next week. Plastic bag, dripping 